0: Hey, Cole, are you ready for trick or treaters? If by that, do you mean I'm ready to hide in the back, turn off all the lights, and pretend no one's home? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Halloween!
1: Welcome to Second to Die. Horror fiction podcast. Where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole.
0: Happy Halloween! <laughs> Welcome to the Halloween episode, everybody. Because the stars aligned and Saturday is Halloween, we are posting on. Never mind. What? It, oh, we were posting. It, no, it just. It was a lot more coherent in my head. I've had a lot of caffeine. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: So yeah, this is the Halloween episode, also the final episode in my Halloween and October themed movies, of which there were five, I figured out, originally thinking there were only four.
0: That was fun last week when I had to be like, no, no, no.
1: But it all worked out because I knew what I was going to do for today, but I didn't know what I was going to do for last week. And so here we are. Anyways. And the reason is because I wanted to do literally one of my favorite movies of all time. If not, I'm trying to think. It may be the movie that I have seen the most times in my life. Yeah, I think it is. Anyways, do you want to know what I'm doing? (laughs) Yes, you have me hanging in suspense. So, I mean, when I say it, you're going to be like, oh, that makes sense. But that being said, it's Halloween And so, I'm talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, the 1994 Halloween Gothorama movie,
0: The Crow. Oh! It took, like, five seconds for that to, like, click in my head. (laughs) I've never seen it. I know you haven't. I'm
1: sure we will eventually watch it together. I feel like we talk about it every year, and then we just don't. Every year we
0: talk about doing it while we carve a pumpkin, and then we never do. Because garbage. (laughs) Well... So, I mean, the background on that is that
1: I used to... So, when I grew up, I grew up in Western Michigan, as I've mentioned, I think, a couple times. And we would always carve our pumpkins the night before Halloween. I don't know why we did that. We never did it earlier. I always thought it was so weird that people would, like, carve pumpkins and put them out, like, a week before Halloween. Just because in my family, that's not how it was. So, the night before Halloween, we would always carve our pumpkins. And then when I moved away... When I was 17, I mean, I've lived in New Orleans for 21 years, but I didn't grow up here. But when I moved down here and obviously I've kind of been down here on my own more or less ever since. So I kind of kept this tradition of carving pumpkins on the night before Halloween and I would always carve pumpkins and then watch the movie The Crow because it was one of my favorite movies growing up because, as I have mentioned multiple times as well. I was, like, a very teenage goth, and so, like, The Crow, to me, was just, like, everything. And it still kind of is, to be honest. That
0: movie is slamming. I mean, we used to carve pumpkins the night before Halloween, too, but that's because in Florida, you don't have an option. You carve it the night before, and you hope that your pumpkin does not rot before the next day, because it's just too hot and humid. Yeah, I mean, we're... As, you know, like in Michigan, there were
1: frequent times where we were putting pumpkins out like in the snow. Whereas I didn't see
0: snow until I was 22.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'd like get this Halloween costume only to have to put on a giant winter coat over it. It's just so much, so
0: much time lost. So much disappointment.
1: Yeah. But that was also, you know, I don't know, back in the back in the good old days when you could, you know, trick or treat at night i don't feel like people do that anymore i think there's like a safety issue back back in the 90s honestly i don't think people cared about the safety of their kids but that's a different topic altogether anyway so the reason i kind of bring that up too uh, aside from the fact that it explains my history with this movie is because the crow does not take place on halloween day it takes place the night before halloween which is in michigan called devil's night oh yeah you've told me about that before Yes. And one thing I did not realize when I moved down here was that that was not just a Michigan thing. And I think it is mostly Michigan. There are other parts of the country, I think, that call it Mischief Night. But the concept of Devil's Night is a mainly Michigan thing and actually, to be honest, mainly a Detroit thing. But it kind of bleeds over into the rest of the state. But I'm going to talk a little bit about this movie, but also about the concept briefly of Devil's Night because it's very important to this movie. And maybe that's one of the reasons I liked it so much and all my gothy friends growing up liked this so much is cuz it's set in Detroit about this thing that we all knew about. Although like to be truthful with you, like I thought Devil's Night was a countrywide thing, but it makes sense because it's like a very big deal or it was. And so it makes sense I guess if it were happening all over the country, I would have known more about it. But that being said briefly, Devil's Night. What is it? Who is it? What does it do? Well, it's the night before Halloween. It originated in the 1940s as a way for sort of the youths of the city to engage in mischievous acts. Things like TPing and like leaving bags, dog poop on people's doorsteps and stuff like that. And that stuff did actually happen in Grand Rapids. Like that, there was a lot of TPing on Devil's Night and like egging people's houses and cars and stuff like that.
0: In my neighborhood, you just had to keep your cats inside because there was a gang that had their gang initiation in my neighborhood and the night before... Or no, it was Halloween night. They would kidnap people's cats and like feed them acid and skin them alive and leave them on people's porches.
1: Well, they issue a a warning every Halloween. Well, they used to, at least. I don't know if they still do. To, like, if you have black cats or something, to keep them indoors. Because I guess, like, there w- was a phenomenon where people would kill black cats on Halloween. Yeah, they didn't have to
0: be black cats. Like, I, I had a friend who... Like, they heard a noise outside as they were eating dinner after gang in from trick-or-treating, and they went outside and someone had fed acid to their cat. Mm. Florida is so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so
1: that was the origins of uh, Devil's Night. In the 1970s, it kind of escalated from that and turned more into vandalism and arson, with a destructive peak in the 1980s, for example... In 1984, in the city of Detroit, there were over 800 fires set. Oh my god. And not like trash can fires, like buildings on fire. (laughs) That's insane. Yes. Essentially, they said any year around that time period would average between 500 and 800 fires. In the couple days leading up to Halloween, most specifically on Devil's Night. It became this big thing. And it really wasn't until the 90s, essentially, the city of Detroit set up this big task force to try to combat this because it was getting to be such a problem. I mean, businesses were literally being destroyed that they ended up creating this thing called Angels Night Volunteers, which was essentially people could sign up to sort of patrol the city to stop Devil's Night Mischief. And the first night they did it, they had over 50,000 volunteers sign up and it really did significantly reduce it. And to give you an idea, in 2018, there were only four registered fires attributed to Devil's Night in Detroit. So I guess it was effective. So yeah, this movie takes place on Devil's Night. Well, I say that. It opens on Devil's Night, and then you'll you'll see. I'm not going to, so okay, also pre-warning, I'm not going to go through the entire plot of this movie because I'm talking a lot on the intro to it. And there's also some big things I have to discuss in regards to this movie, some very important things that anybody listening to this probably already knows that I'm going to talk about. And so the plot is pretty simple if you just talk about it, but the biggest things of this movie are not necessarily the point for point plot, but the sort of atmosphere of it and whatnot. Anyways, let me just move on for a second because I have a lot to discuss. It was so, okay. This movie was directed by uh, Alex Proyas Basically, it's based off a comic book, which you may know. I don't know. A graphic novel, which was written by James O'Barr, who is from Detroit himself. And he originally... It's funny because he originally, when he met with the movie executives, they told him that they wanted this movie to be a musical starring Michael Jackson. And O'Barr thought they were joking and laughed out loud. And it was one of those, like, what's so funny moments. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) The Crow, the musical. (laughs) That would have been probably a movie I would not have gotten super into. Also, I haven't read the comic books. But I think, to be honest, as far as graphic novels go, I probably would like them. Obar said that he was listening to a lot of The Cure and Joy Division while creating it. That was kind of like how he set the mood in his head. And that was like right up my alley for Teenage Goth Max.
0: I mean, I've heard of The Cure.
1: I know you know who The Cure is. Joy Division, I can forgive you for not knowing, but I know you know who The Cure is.
0: I've heard of them.
1: You would... You know, show me, show me, show me how you do that. You know? No. Or um, Friday, I'm in love with you. That doesn't sound familiar. Oh my God. Sorry. This podcast is canceled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Our marriage is canceled.
1: (sighs) I wish you had told me this. (sighs) Too late. Anyway, so we'll be listening to The Cure all Halloween day. Oh my god.
0: I've like completely lost my train of thought now. (laughs) I grew up thinking country music was the only music in the world. Literally. Well, briefly. The Cure is a great
1: goth band. And the lead singer of The Cure is named Robert Smith. And I'm just telling you that because... Robert Smith actually wrote a song specifically for this soundtrack
0: and it's very good. <laughs> I don't really have much more to say about that. I'm sorry. I feel like I've like super thrown you off and I didn't mean to.
1: Not really. I to be honest wasn't expecting you to be super familiar with them. So okay. So in that vein though, of Obar writing this comic with this like very sort of like moody goth atmosphere, the director, Alex Proyas, originally was going to shoot this film in black and white and only have color in the flashback scenes because that is how the comic is drawn, where the modern times is a black and white depiction and then any, the only color is used in flashbacks. Allegedly. I've read this. I haven't read the graphic novels. If there's some variance to this, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. So the studio executives were like, you're not shooting this movie in black and white. This is not an experiment for you. So in order to get around this and compromise, the movie is shot in a monochromatic color scheme mixed with reds and dark grays. And then I also read somewhere that when they did like post-production, they ended up doing this thing where I think they put like a sepia um, filter on it and then kind of modified that a little bit to make it even more sort of gritty and grungy looking. It looks good. It does not look filtered. It just looks really gray toned.
0: Hashtag no filter.
1: Looks like, to be honest, it kind of looks like our ideal wardrobes (laughs) to me. Really, it's like a lot of grays and then like a splash of color here and there. Okay, so that being said, I'm going to briefly talk about the cast because there is this kind of elephant in the room for a lot of people listening. Because, as you may or may not know, and (gasps) I don't know if you know this. Doesn't one of them die? Yes. So, The Crow stars Brandon Lee as Eric Draven, who is the main character. He was killed during filming when shot by what was supposed to be a prop gun that had a real bullet in the chamber. Yes, I had heard about that. Okay. So, I'll talk a little bit about what happened, because I think a lot of people know of this, but may not know exactly what happened. I do know what happened. Well, because once, one, I've read it, and two, I was obsessed with this movie for a very long time. Essentially what happened is they had this gun, and in, it had been previously used in a scene where there was a close-up, and so it had to have these like capped bullets. And I guess I don't, I'm not like an expert on prop bullets or anything like that, but I guess prop bullets have a different cap color, like blanks, which would make sense because you want to be able to distinguish them. So for the close up gun, they needed to use real bullets essentially that had like a brass cap. So they had this gun and it was cocked in the scene and with a close up so they could see the real bullet in it. So after that scene, apparently, The arms master, who is like the firearm expert that will work on movies, had gone home. The prop master took the gun and he knew that there was a real bullet in it in the chamber because it had been cocked. So he dry fires it to get the bullet out. Well, anyone who knows anything about guns would know that what happens when you fire a gun is the chamber bullet is discharged and then the next bullet is put into the chamber. The prop master, I think, thought that that would just empty the chamber until it was cocked again. That's all I can think of. So there was a bullet in there. So then they took the cartridge out and they put the blanks in. But the the live bullet from the previous scene was still in the chamber because it had been pushed in after the fire. So what he thought he was doing by unloading the gun was actually not unloading the gun. Jesus. It was just loading another bullet. So then there was a scene where it's actually – I'm like – 100% certain it is not in the movie anymore. There was a scene where um, Brandon Lee's character comes in holding a bag of groceries and the bag had a blood pack in it. And the character Fun Boy, who's played by Michael Massey, is supposed to shoot him through the groceries and trigger the blood pack in it. So that happens and he shoots him. And essentially, from what I have read, Lee was basically just killed right there because it shot him, I think, through the chest.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's insane. That footage, used, That footage, because they were filming at the time, was used in the lawsuit um, because Lee's mother ended up suing and they ended up settling. But that footage after the lawsuit was resolved was destroyed. So it is not in the movie and it can, from what people say, cannot be found anywhere. Well, that's good because it's basically a snuff film. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then Michael Massey afterwards... He was cleared of all culpability, which makes sense, but he didn't work for a year because he said he was so traumatized by it, and he, he actually ended up dying in 2016, and even up until his death, he never watched that movie, and said that he had nightmares for years and years and years afterward about killing him.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine how guilty he must have felt, even though, like you said, like... it. It wasn't his fault at all. There was no way he could have known. But still, Jesus, fuck.
1: Yeah, I mean, that. it's absolutely insane to me. But it did change things in the film industry, apparently. That movie is credited for having a huge effect on gun safety standards in filming. And now, apparently, when people are shot like that on film, it is almost always where the gun is pointed ...away from the person and they rely on camera angles to make it seem otherwise... ...to avoid any potential mix-ups like that in the future.
0: That's one good thing. It's just a shame that didn't happen sooner.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is very, very tragic. And also, because I didn't mention it, Brandon Lee is the son of Bruce Lee. Famous actor slash martial arts expert who also died. So this, along with a few other things that now I'm going to mention also gave The Crow a reputation for being a cursed film. (laughs) You look excited, because I know you like crazy weird stuff like this.
0: I do, though I do want to cut in here and like make sure everyone knows that I'm not gleeful over the fact that someone died.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll also mention it now, too, that I would have mentioned anyways a little bit later, that obviously normally when I talk about movies, I'm like very quippy and um, comedic when I summarize things. But I can tell you right now that there is not going to be a point where I make any jokes in regards to Brandon Lee. I just think it's disrespectful. One, I love this movie, and they're really it's not really that silly or stupid. And two, it just, to me personally, doesn't seem appropriate, and so I'm not going to do it. But I am still going to talk about the movie, obviously, because I'm doing it right now. Tell me more. So, okay, getting back to why this is a cursed film. In the early stages of this movie, in fact, on the first day of filming... A carpenter suffered serious burns to the upper part of his body. A
0: manual worker had a screwdriver embedded into his hand. Uh. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) That was completely knee jerk.
1: An equipment truck burst into flames. A stuntman suffered several broken ribs after falling through a roof. Obviously, I I know it sounds like this because the punctuation used. This did not all happen on the first day.
0: Oh. The first thing
1: happened on the first day.
0: Oh, okay. I
1: realized that as I was talking, I was like, this
0: clearly did not all happen. I'm sitting here, I'm like, Jesus, that was a rough break. Like, <laughs> we've all had bad first days at work, but man. I know, and then everybody quit. The end.
1: Um. So, Stuntman broke his ribs. Yeah, so then a rigger, which for people, I guess, who don't know, riggers are basically just kind of general labor workers who like set up... Um like equipment for like i don't even know how to describe it like cameras and stuff like that i'm this is like such a bad description
0: (laughs) film rigging perhaps
1: yeah sure there you go okay anyways one of them was electrocuted Well, it said so when i read it it said horribly electrocuted but i'm gonna guess what they meant was shocked because electrocuted implies death from what i'm aware of i think i think when you're electrocuted it's when you're shocked to death anyways moving along Mm -hmm. And then, a disgruntled set sculptor went berserk and drove his car through the props room, destroying it. All right. And lastly... Oh, boy. (laughs) A hurricane came through and destroyed several of the sets that were set up. Where was this filmed? All over the place, but I think some places were in, I want to say, North Carolina. Oh, okay. I'm just sitting
0: here thinking, like, you said Detroit several times, I'm like... When has a hurricane ever hit Detroit? It was not filmed in Detroit. Oh, okay. I just sat there. Yeah,
1: I think there, I can't remember exactly which set it was. There it definitely was some of it, I think, in North Carolina because there was this old abandoned graveyard or something that is had been used in a couple movies and they used it in this movie as well. There was also talk about how this movie had a lot of sort of cost cutting and stuff involved. One of the crewmates said they were trying to make a $30 million movie on an $18 million budget. And that there were awful conditions, the pay was terrible, and the schedules were terrible. To give you an idea, at one point, it was so cold during filming that they had to have riggers standing by the cameras with blowtorches de-icing them outside of the shots while filming. Yikes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> movie filming is no dream, obviously. I think a lot of people know that. Um You know, obviously, I've talked about when I was an extra in Green Lantern and how it was horrific, like, condition-wise. But that seems real extreme.
0: Yeah, no, that's rough. Firm pass. I'm good.
1: So, okay. So that's basically most of the lead-in to this. I did just want to mention a couple other cast members just because there's um, this girl, Sarah. She's played by Rochelle Davis, and her character is very cool and... Is I'm not going to talk about a lot of the scenes with her, so I wanted to mention this. It, she's basically used for a lot of sort of like emotional and dramatic devices with the main character Eric Draven and to give him more of a heart. And it is very effective. Their scenes are together. And then also interesting, the character Micah is played by Bai Ling. Uh, I'll get into why these characters are kind of fun when I'm talking about the movie a little bit. Her brother, question mark, boyfriend is what? <laughs> I'll talk about it in a second. The character's name is Top Dollar. He's played by Michael Wincott. And then there's another character, Grange, who's played by Tony Todd, who actually is the character who plays um, Candyman in the Candyman movies. What's weird about those three characters is they're never mentioned by name in the entire movie. And honestly, up until doing this episode, if you had asked me what their names were, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. I, I Like, I obviously know their characters very well, but... When I read that they're never called by name, I was like, oh, yeah, they're not called by name ever. Interesting. Yeah. So I'll get into the plot of this movie. The only other thing I wanted to mention is one of the things I like about this movie is it's very quotable. And in being quotable, it uses a lot of quotes from sort of historic and literary reference points that I know you would really appreciate. I'm only going to mention a couple of them because going through all of them would just take way too much time, but I'll mention them as we get there.
0: I love literary references. And they're
1: they're very fitting because, to be honest, most of them are pretty gothy, and they just they work really well. So I've already talked for a long time, which is why the plot part of this is not going to be that long. If you haven't seen The Crow by now, you really should. So I'll just start talking about parts of it. So it opens up. October 30th, Devil's Night, and Detroit is on fire. The opening of the movie is narrated by the character Sarah. I don't... They just use her voice, I think, just because it's nice. But basically, she sort of sets the tone for the movie and lets us know that people, essentially... There's a belief, among some people, that when somebody dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But that sometimes, something so bad happens that the soul cannot rest. So sometimes the crow will bring the soul back to make things right. That's essentially a paraphrase of what she says, which is fine. It basically kind of lets us know the mythos that we're in, in a very short, succinct way, which I appreciate. Yes. So then we learned that essentially there was a couple that was killed on October 30th, which also happened to be the night before their wedding.
0: And yeah, the Halloween wedding. I know one of the um,
1: police officers even says who gets married in Halloween. And then actually it's a really good line because then the head detective goes, nobody, obviously
0: oh shit
1: yeah but honestly halloween weddings do happen obviously you know my mother's a florist she has done many halloween weddings i mean all you have to do is look at pinterest and you see halloween weddings everywhere yeah i mean it's a good time that wouldn't honestly i don't even think like that would have been a bad idea for us except that halloween here is like an 80 degree situation
0: yeah no so which is why i wanted a january wedding I know. (laughs) And it was still like almost 60 degrees. (laughs) It was still warm. Yeah.
1: To have an outdoor wedding. Yeah. You could not. I don't think you could do that here in October.
0: No. But it was perfect in January. Yeah. It was. I mean, the weather was great. Yes. Anyway. (laughs) So, okay. I could reminisce about our wedding for hours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, basically, they're investigating the death of this couple. Essentially, the guy, Eric Draven was thrown out a window and Shelly was attacked and is like bleeding and dying and she's hauled off to a hospital she ends up surviving for like 30 hours I think it is but then she ultimately succumbs to her wounds then it cuts to a year later and we can see the gravestones of Eric Draven and Shelly and there's a crow on the gravestone and then you kind of see like the dirt moving and Eric comes back from the dead it doesn't waste any time in achieving this I appreciate that you know how I feel about boring backstory. <laughs> yes. And this movie does give some backstory, but it does it through more like artistic flashback scenes. And normally I'm not like in love with flashbacks, but they're done it, like they're it's like done like a memory flashing
0: back and like spliced in with what's actually happening in the modern. Flashbacks are fine if they are succinct and concise. Yeah. Those are synonyms, but I needed to use them. Basically, they need to be very short. Unlike the episode of Lucifer, which is where we stopped watching, which was an entire episode in some weird bullshit noir style. (laughs) Yeah, I agree.
1: Okay, so meanwhile, we're introduced to, I guess, the four sort of like bad guys. They're the four people that essentially attacked and killed Eric and Shelley. And their names are Tintin, Funboy, Skank, and T-Bird. These are obviously street names. Street names are a real thing, though. Let Let me tell you. Because sometimes, when it hasn't happened to me recently, but sometimes, for instance, in like a court criminal document, you'll see that like it's a case versus somebody, and aliases are put on case titles very often. So it would be like State of Louisiana versus so 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 and so, AKA Tintin. And it comes up as like. It's funny because sometimes you have to fight to get those names off of there because sometimes it's literally like State of Louisiana versus like Joe Schmo,
0: a.k.a. The Butcher. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, it's like I'm trying to um, keep this person from getting the death penalty. Yeah. Okay, so we learn that those are the people involved in the attack through
1: this like flashback scene. And the only reason I'm even bringing up this particular flashback scene is because it's one of the better... Famous literary quote moments, because during it, during the scene, it's like kind of very violent and stuff. And the character T-Bird says a quote from Milton's Paradise Lost, Mm -hmm. which is, abashed the devil stood and felt how awful goodness was. And that's used again later in the movie, but it's a great quote. It's not as effective when I'm just saying it, but it is very effective in the movie. So the majority of this movie is essentially Eric coming back from the dead and hunting down these four people. He does so successfully in each case. I'm not going to describe the scenes. The death scenes are all very cool. They're very, like, just to give you an idea, like, he, like, Tintin uses knives and he ends up, like, killing Tintin and then they find Tintin's body with, like, knives stuck in, like, all of his organs and stuff, like, individual organs. Yeah. It's like that kind of a thing. And it's obviously very long and I'm not going to describe them, but they, it's worth watching. They're very cool. I will say, so the scene where he, I, I'll, the only other one I'll bring up right now is when he goes to kill Funboy, him and Sarah's mother, whose name is Darla, they're shooting up morphine and he ends up killing Fun Boy. It's also this part where when he comes in, like, he tells this joke. It is, he says, and I think I've actually even said this to you before, because I quote this movie quite a bit and you just may not realize it, but he said, at one point, Funboy says, Jesus Christ. I, oh, he shoots um Eric in the hand and it heals instantly and he goes Jesus Christ and then Eric says Jesus Christ stop me if you've heard this one Jesus Christ walks into a hotel hands the innkeeper three nails and says can you put me up for the night you have said that to me before <laughs> and that's a line I got from the from the crow so he ends up killing funboy but the reason I bring it up is because Darla Sarah's mom runs to the bathroom he goes into the bathroom and they had just shot up morphine. And he grabs Darla's arm and, like, magically squeezes the morphine out. Like, the morphine comes out of the track marks from her. That's horrifying. It is pretty horrifying. And then he says, Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. That is a quote from William Makepeace Thackeray from Vanity Fair in 1848. Huh. Yeah. But it's a cool quote. And then he says, morphine is bad for you. Your daughter is out on the streets waiting. And then she runs out. <laughs> so, so that's all I'm going to say about the death scenes. Then worth mentioning, because I kind of alluded to it before, is when we meet Top Dollar and Micah. They're sort of like the big crime lord people. And they are super weird. And also st- siblings. I think step-siblings. In the movie, basically... Uh, top dollar refers to Micah as his sister, even though the part that I'm about to tell you happens, Micah is played by Bai Ling, who is a Chinese actress and looks Chinese in the film. Top dollar is not, he just looks Caucasian, I think. And so at one point in the movie, they, he calls her his sister and somebody's like, what? And he's like, oh, you don't see the resemblance. That's my father's daughter. So it might be a stepsister situation. I don't know. Or like a half-sibling, sort of. Either way, when you first meet them, Micah is basically coming out of the shower, and like she's naked and comes out, and like he's naked in the bed, and then there's this other naked girl in the bed, and they roll her over, and she's dead. And Top Dollar is like, I think we broke this one. And then Micah, who is like, she's kind of like the super witchy, dark woman, basically just goes up to her and says, I love her eyes pretty. And then she takes out this dagger and starts to motion to cut them out and then it cuts way to another scene. And then like later on, the next scene that we see them, they're basically sitting at a table and there's a giant plate of cocaine in front of Top Dollar and this goblet situation on fire and there's an eyeball in the goblet. So, I normally, to be honest, like... Oh boy. (laughs) Micah is like the super witchy character and I think normally in a movie, I would be like... Oh, blah, blah, blah. Insert joke about essential oils and witchiness and Sephora and shit like that. But, like, she's, like, straight up burning an eyeball on a chalice. So, that's, like, on un- the next level, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to jump forward a lot of things and just kind of get to the end of this. If you want to know. I guess if you don't want to know how this movie from a billion years ago ends, then you can skip forward a couple minutes. But, Eric basically kills all four of the people. And then... Micah figures out that he gets his power from the crow. They want to steal it. So, Top Dollar decides to kidnap Sarah because he knows that Eric and Sarah are connected and he'll come to rescue her. Long story short, he does go to rescue her. They end up shooting the crow and wounding it, which takes away Eric's immortality. So, then he can be hurt, but they still, there's this big kind of like fight out action scene where the bird ends up plucking out Micah's eyes and she falls down a bell tower. Cause oh, because this all happens in this like super dark abandoned gothy church. Because of course of course, co- it, of course does. it does. <laughs> so that happens, and then he runs up to the roof. Him and Top Dollar have a nighttime sword fight in the rain. Because of course they do. This movie is like the goth wet dream. It's so it is. It really is, and it is so good. <laughs> oh my god, I also forgot to mention. That obviously, I don't need to necessarily mention this because he's so clearly wearing this makeup, but that the crow makeup that he wears, he's wearing this the whole time. I didn't mention when he put that on, but needless to say, he comes back from the dead and he needs to put makeup on immediately. Like you do. But what's really interesting about that is apparently when they were filming, Lee did not like how the makeup looked from when the makeup people were doing it. And the director agreed with him and he said that it just didn't look right. So they agreed that Lee would just put his own makeup on at night, sleep in it, and then show up to the set. So that's why it looks so worn out. And that's how they achieved the look they wanted.
0: Interesting. Mm
1: -hmm. I thought that was actually kind of cool.
0: God, that pillowcase was so fucked up by the time he was done, though.
1: Needless to say, many people have been the crow for Halloween, including myself one year. Yes, there's a picture of it.
0: (laughs) Yes, there is. I thought it was goth clown makeup. Well, in a way, I guess it is. Well, yeah, but then when I, like, snuck a picture of that and sent it to friends, they're like, that's the crow. Do you not realize that's what that is, Cole? And I was like, no, I just thought that Max <laughs> When is a goth clown. Okay, if you did, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, I guess that's
1: fair enough. Okay, so at the end of the day, Micah and Top Dollar killed. Eric, mortally injured, crawls back to the graveyard, and then... Just to give us one last sort of gothgasm, Eric sees Shelly in this like flowy, I guess diaphanous, like white, um, it, it's a wedding dress, I think, but it's kind of like this wedding dress nightgown sort of compromise because it's like it doesn't it's not like full on wedding
0: it's the kind of dress that you run across the moors in (laughs) right is what i'm hearing here and i am on board right now as you know that's on my bucket list right so she's walking through the dark windy graveyard in this dress yes yeah and they they have sex on the grave
1: no she carries him to the grave so that he can go
0: rest finally mary shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave she was like a goth icon so yeah she ends up laying him on the grave and then that's
1: essentially the end of the film. There is a little bit of voiceover and and stuff that's very sweet and stuff like that. And then the film cuts out to a black screen with white letters. And it just says, for Brandon and Eliza. And Eliza was Brandon Lee's real-life fiancé when he was killed. Oh, Yeah, I thought you would enjoy that.
0: No, I did not enjoy that. I did not enjoy that at all.
1: Well, when I say that, that sounds kind of callous. When I say enjoy that, it's because... Yeah, appreciate is a better word. Because Cole loves romance. I mean, he's like hopeless romantic type. Even though he pretends to be a little spiny beetle, he's like a hopeless romantic.
0: I'm a little teddy bear (laughs) underneath the (laughs) spine. Okay, so that's that. So really quick final thoughts
1: that I should mention first and foremost is this movie's soundtrack is banging. If you like sort of dark music not like dark wave, but like sort of like gothy eighties, nineties, goth music. You have to listen to the soundtrack. I still listen to this all the time. And one part I didn't mention, this has one of my favorite all time songs in the world of all time. And I'm a huge music person. So this is like a big thing to say, which is the song after the flesh by um, my life with the thrill kill cult. And the thrill kill Cult is actually in this movie. Like they're performing it in a nightclub. That song is phenomenal. And also the Thrill Kill Call is probably my favorite group in general if I had to pick one. So, there's that. You either like them or you hate them. I like them. So, great soundtrack. Great atmosphere. There's also... So, a lot of the drama scenes are enhanced because they they have a score to them. There actually is... So, there's the Crow soundtrack and there's the Crow score. And the score is a lot of, like, very sort of string-heavy gothy music and that is played behind a lot of sort of these like dramatic scenes to enhance them it's very effective so anyway all i can really say about it is that this movie is great i mean clearly i've seen it i mean legitimately over 50 times so people should watch it i don't have anything negative to say
0: about it well i will have to watch it sometime
1: so now tell me what you're going to talk
0: about All right, so this week I am doing a book that is very near and dear to my heart. I am doing the 2012, what I would argue is a modern pulp classic, Pen Pal by Dathan Auerbach. So this is the only book that has ever scared me as an adult. I mean, when I was a child, I read like a ghost story and was terrified. But like, this is the only book that really scared me. So I was rereading it for this podcast, but the first time I read it, I was working the front desk at a gym, and I remember standing at that desk at 8 a.m., very bright outside, next to a wall of windows. It's on Magazine Street, like traffic, people everywhere. The gym is full of people, and I was scared shitless.
1: Yeah, I remember you talking about this um, the first time you read it, I think, and then you've mentioned it quite a few times. That's because I love it.
0: So let's talk about the cover and the blurb super fast, and then I can kind of get into the book itself. Uh, the cover, which was designed by D.R. Tuzeo, is a misty forest, a silhouette of a kid amidst the trees. Trees are inherently creepy. It definitely works. And the blurb is also short and sweet. And it attempt to make sense of his own mysterious and unsettling childhood memories— a man begins to reconstruct his past. As the games and adventures of youth become engulfed by a larger story, he finds that it forms a tapestry of unbelievable horror that he never could have expected. Bum, bum, bum. That tells me so little about what that book's going to be. I know. There's like a second paragraph to it that... I don't know. I just decided not to include it. So I'm going to talk a little bit of the backstory before... I get into the actual book itself. Uh, First of all, do you know what creepypasta is? I do. Good. (laughs) Hopefully everyone listening to this does. But if you don't know, creepypasta are urban legend-like horror stories that are published on the internet. Uh, Things like Abandoned Disney, The Russian Sleep Experiment. Slenderman
1: was creepypasta, right?
0: Yes. Slenderman started off as a creepypasta. The Grinning Man... Which is one of my favorites, or Smiling Man, or whatever. For those of you playing at home, I love Creepypasta. Uh, my favorite procrastination technique in college and in grad school was to stay up for hours reading it. And there's this really beautiful sweet spot about 2 a.m. when I get really jumpy. And that was my favorite time because it made it absolutely terrifying. I'd basically just be in my apartment, scared shitless of like a story of a lost episode of SpongeBob. <laughs> There's one about a lost episode of Spongebob. It was so good. I loved it. Hmm. But the Russian Sleep Experiment is one of my favorites, and they are actually making a movie based off of the Russian Sleep Experiment that is supposed to come out this year. I know nothing about it. Well, maybe you can watch it and do it for an episode. So, Pen Pal actually started as a series of creepypasta stories that Auerbach posted on Reddit.
1: We... As a series of stories, so is it like, um, is it like a serial or?
0: Sort of. So Pen Pal is seven different chapters, Mm -hmm. and each chapter is kind of its own self-contained story of an event, but they're all linked. Okay. So there's like a meta plot, Um, and then you have the seven chapters. But I think basically, I didn't hear about Pen Pal until after it was an actual physical book, so I... Never saw it in its kind of, like, Reddit version. But from what I can guess, I think he posted, like, a chapter at a time. Okay,
1: so he released it sort of gradually. Yes. Okay, that's kind of cool.
0: And I'll tell you which one he started with when I get to it, when I'm actually talking about the plot. But he eventually ran a Kickstarter campaign, and that is how he got it published into a physical book. Oh, that's kind of cool. And he's actually written something else since, which I plan on reading at some point, so... But it reads like creepypasta, which is probably why I love it so much. Um, There's kind of this quality of creepypasta where it rambles for a little bit and almost like lulls you into this false sense of boredom almost. And I don't mean that shadily because it feels very intentional. It lulls you into this false sense of the everyday. And then all of a sudden things get really like over the top, insanely intense. Hmm. And this book has that, and I really, really enjoy stuff like that. So, before I get into the plot, I'm going to go ahead and give everyone a heads up. There will be spoilers. And by that, I mean I'm basically going to talk about the entire plot, because everything ties together. And a lot of the terror from reading this book comes from not knowing what's happening. So, if you have any interest in reading this at all, seriously... Just go and read it and come back. We'll still be here. It's like 200 pages. If you're one of my friends who lives in New Orleans, the library has two different copies. <laughs> um,
1: Don't you, you? I should know this, but you put the stuff that you're reading for like the next week on Goodreads as you're reading it, right? Yes. So theoretically, people should also know that if they want to just stay ahead of the
0: episodes, they should just subscribe to the Goodreads and, and look, right? Yes. Okay because rereading it it was still good but i was not scared at any point sure like it was just like "Mm, whatever like there were a couple small details that i had forgotten that i was like ooh creepy but it wasn't that same like visceral like i'm so fucking scared right now anyway if you have left to read that book welcome back if you've stuck with us the whole time let's keep going Uh, The structure of this book's plot jumps around a lot because it's framed in terms of the order that the author recalls things while he's discussing these events with his mother. It works really well when you're reading it, but it isn't going to work well for a spoken discussion. So I have broken it all down and put it all in chronological order so that things will make more sense as I'm talking to you. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the book opens with like just this introduction thing, basically where he says what I just told you about how he is telling things as he's remembering. And there's a little kind of splices in about the conversations that he has with his mother. But it all starts in kindergarten. And our character is unnamed. But for the purpose of this episode, I'm just going to call him Dathan, which is the author's name. I have a reason for picking that. I'll get to it. Okay. But anyway, his class has like a community project where they are taking balloons and attached to these balloons are a Polaroid of the child, the address of the school, and a request that whoever finds the balloon take a picture of where they are, write a short note, and send it back to the school. And they release the balloons outside.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I think, honestly, I think we did that in middle school.
0: We didn't because the 90s were kind of the start of, like, Protect Your Children. (laughs) Which is going to come into play. Okay. (laughs) Got to be great. So, important to remember, Dathan attaches a dollar that he has written for stamps also to his. Okay. and, And sends it off. So, throughout the school year, other kids are getting notes and, like, really distinct pictures of places around town. And all Dathan is getting are these weird, blurry, not very good Polaroids. No notes, no nothing. So that summer, Dathan and his best friend, Josh, both have like toy snow cone makers and they're making snow cones and they're selling them in the neighborhood. And it does go so far as to like, mention like just this like friendly dude from the neighborhood that pops by. They only do it a few times that happens to pop by each time. Going back and rereading it, obviously you know what's going on. But like at the time when you're reading through this, you're like, oh, that's just like a dude. Whatever. And then one of the days that they do the snow cones, afterwards they go and they play in the woods near this ditch. And while they're playing they hear a whole lot of sounds in the woods that don't sound like animals. Like it's like a heavier noise than just like deer walking around. And they joke and say that it must be a robot because they hear like a mechanical sound. Spoiler alert, it's a Polaroid Shutter Flash. And the next time that they do the snow cones as they're counting out their money at the end of the day, Dathan finds the dollar that says four stamps on it that he sent on his balloon. So he gets really excited and he's like, Josh, I still have all of my Polaroids. And he lays them all out, like all the Polaroids from kindergarten class. And he's like, and this is the dollar that I included. And as he's looking, he all of a sudden realizes that every single Polaroid that he got, he is in. Hmm. Whether it's just like he's in the corner or like you can just barely see like his jacket or something like that. He is in every single one. And I want to say there's like 50 of them. And so he decides that he's going to go tell his mom, so he gathers them all together, and he goes to the kitchen, and his mom is bringing in the mail, and he's like, oh, mom, mom, look at this, and she's only half listening, and then all of a sudden she starts freaking out, because Dathan got a an envelope in the mail, and it is, no note, just a Polaroid of him and Josh playing at the ditch. And there is no postmark on it, which means that it was just, like, hand put in the mailbox. Right. So she freaks the fuck out. Obviously, understandably, like someone has been taking pictures of her child and knows where they live. Weirdly enough, that is not enough of an impetus for them to move. No, Dathan has to wake up in the woods for that. I mean, I feel like you call the police. Not Moving is hard. Yeah, but protecting your child from a stalker. Anyway, uh, so we learned that, and this is actually the first story that was posted on Reddit, and it was inspired by Dathan having a memory of waking up on his porch. The real Dathan, sorry. Right, the like, author. The author. So, book Dathan, we learned, ha- will often like go to sleep on the top bunk of his bed and wake up on the bottom, things like that. I can identify with that, as you are more than aware of. <laughs> I sleepwalk. I have even talked to you in my sleep about 90% healing in the laundry room. <laughs> yeah, I remember oh, that. That was a good time. But really, like, the worst thing that happens to me is, like, I have random bruises because I run into stuff a lot. And whatever. And you um, eat a lot. I do eat in my sleep. I really like food. <laughs> um, No, I do eat in my sleep. I wake up in other rooms. Remember when I went through that weird phase where I would turn on all the lights in the house?
1: I remember waking up and having to turn
0: lights off. Yeah, and when I took all the cases off the pillows. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, that happens every now and then. Anyway, Dathan wakes up in the middle of this clearing, surrounded by like thorny bushes, but he has no cuts on his feet. So he eventually makes his way home. It's actually a very harrowing chapter because... He's in the woods, but he's in a part that he's never been in before. So he has no idea where he is and doesn't really know how to get home. And like he doubles back a couple of times, but he eventually gets there. And obviously his mother is super freaking out because apparently he left a note saying that he was running away. But the thing is, he doesn't remember writing a note. And in the signature, his name is spelled wrong. Hmm. Which is why I'm choosing to call him Dathan, because maybe, like, a stalker would think his name was Nathan. Sure. No, that makes sense. Also,
1: just briefly to point out, I feel like sometimes when people, like, read in stories or hear about, like, somebody getting lost in the woods, they're like, oh, yeah, being lost in the woods. That's kind of like whatever. Or, like, why don't you just walk in a direction? If you've ever been disoriented in the woods, which I have, it is really, like. You almost start to have a panic attack because every direction looks the same and you really do have no idea where you are. And you don't know if you're running the way. Like, it's. I literally have anxiety even thinking about it because obviously, where I grew up, Michigan has like great nature. It's one of the best parts about Michigan. And so, like, we would be in the woods all the time and, like, not in the city, but you could drive to the woods and, like, go camping and stuff like that. And if you ever get turned around,
0: it really is like freaky. Yeah, no, it's. It is a huge portion of that chapter. And it's not until he finds the ditch, which that's even before you learn about the day that he was playing with Josh. Like I said, the entire book is out of chronological error. But it's not until he finds the ditch that he starts to realize where he is. It's like, it's very harrowing to read because he's like six. Yeah. But anyway, so obviously it's super freaky that he is That there was this note that he did not write. So they decide that they're going to move. And one day as they're packing, their cat, his name is Boxes. (laughs) Oh, Boxes. The cat gets out and goes under the house. Because the house has a crawl space underneath it. And the mom goes underneath to get Boxes out. And when she comes out, she's, like, freaking out. And... They move two weeks early, immediately, and never go back to the house.
1: Okay. I su- I I assume you're going to tell me why.
0: In a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward a little bit longer, and Dathan is spending the night at Josh's house. And because Josh still lives really close to his old house, and Dathan has moved to a completely different part of the town. And Boxes has been missing for a long time because boxes ran away from the new house. And Dathan has this idea of like, what if boxes went to our old house? So Dathan and Josh go back to the old house. Dathan goes underneath into the crawl space and Josh goes into the actual house underneath the crawl space. Dathan finds blankets and cat food and bowls of water. And also Clear signs that someone has been living down there for a very long time. Hmm. Josh. So they have walkie-talkies. Josh comes in over the walkie-talkie as Dathan is trying to process everything that he's seeing. And starts teasing Dathan because he's in Dathan's old bedroom. And the walls are plastered with hundreds of Polaroids of Dathan. Hmm. Hmm. Your eyebrows shot up and it was so satisfying. (laughs) By the way, this is the scene that I was reading at the gym. Yeah. Where I was, like, terrified. Because then... So, Dathan is trying to, like, wrap his mind around the fact that this has happened in his room. And all of a sudden, Josh goes, there's someone in the house. And then the walkie-talkie cuts out. So, Dathan is underneath the house and he can hear Josh running And he can hear footsteps chasing Josh, but doesn't know what's going on. And, like, can't check in with Josh because if Josh is hiding, he'll reveal where Josh is. Right. It's very scary. They eventually escape, but as they're running away, Josh's walkie-talkie catches on a fence. And they just leave it. Mm -hmm. And also as they're running away, Josh keeps saying, he took my picture. He took my picture. He took my picture. The next night when Dathan is home... He hears boxes in his bedroom, and when he looks for boxes, he finds only his walkie-talkie. And boxes, meows, and cries are coming through his walkie-talkie from the walkie-talkie that Josh left behind. Okay. That's creepy. It's great. (laughs) And he never sees boxes again. It's noted that, like, that's the last time. All right, so... Briefly but important there's a scene it's at Dathan's 12th birthday party he and Josh their friendship hasn't really been the same since the night at the other house because understandably Josh is very freaked out but Josh still comes to Dathan's birthday party and Josh mentions that he's been sleepwalking lately which obviously we know what's going on but Dathan doesn't at the time and then when dathan gets a new set of walkie-talkies for his birthday josh calls his dad and leaves and that is the last time that dathan sees josh because they've just fallen out they don't really talk anymore and then they end up going to separate high schools dathan actually goes to an honors high school Mm -hmm. like you did (laughs) because you're smart Mm -hmm. fast forward more we're closing in on the finish where things will start to tie together dathan runs into veronica who is Josh's older sister. And we only find out that he has an older sister in this chapter. So I didn't leave anything out with her. He runs into Veronica. There is like this old theater that does midnight showings of classic horror movies. Honestly, it sounds like something that would be your jam. (laughs) And they end up deciding that they are going to meet up at the next one as kind of like a date sort of situation. And... When they first ran into each other, he asked about Josh, and she acted a little weird. They went on the date, and afterwards they're just talking, and Veronica mentions that around Josh's 13th birthday, which was shortly after Dathan's 12th, Josh ran away and left a note on his bed. So they kind of wander around, they go past an abandoned mall, whatever, and then she is waiting in the parking lot, and he goes around a corner because he needs to pee, and the theater is closed. And he hears tires screech and he comes around the corner and someone has run over Veronica with their car. Oh, my God. And so a bunch of her bones are broken and he calls. He basically digs in her pocket for her cell phone and calls 911. And the only thing that she says really before the end of that scene is he took my picture. So, fast forward to the hospital. Veronica is not really able to communicate, but Dathan goes every single day and spends time with her. And then one day he goes home, and that evening he gets a text from Veronica that says, I really don't want you to see me like this. I don't want you to come visit me anymore. Let's just text. So they text for a long time, and then Veronica's like, I've recovered a whole bunch. Let's go to one of the like, midnight showings. So Dathan goes, and he goes to the movie, and Veronica never shows up. And instead, this kind of, like, weird guy sits in the spot he's holding for her, but doesn't say anything. And then afterwards, he gets a text from Veronica, air quotes, that says, I can't wait to see you again, or see you again soon, or something like that. And then he doesn't hear anything else from her. Well, he later learns... From Veronica's mother, that the last day that he went into the hospital, Veronica died. Hmm. And her cell phone went missing. Bum, bum, bum. So, tying it all together, in the very end, the very last scene, which has a lot more interaction with the mom, the mom reveals things like, you know, she saw the cat food that was put out underneath the house and the signs of people living there. So, that's why they moved away immediately. And things like that. But then she also reveals a time that Josh's father called her and called her and asked her to come out to this construction site in the woods where they were developing a housing project. And he had been working for that site. And this is shortly after Veronica died. And they found a grave where Josh was buried with a man. There were signs that Josh had been buried alive. Josh's hair was dyed dark brown. And Josh was also wearing clothes that were left behind in Dathan's house when they moved away suddenly. Hmm. So to wrap it all up and tie it all together, basically what happened is that the kidnapper wasn't able to actually take Dathan. So he kidnapped Josh instead And kept Josh for four years. And Josh was alive. And Josh had... And, like, made Josh dye his hair and wear Dathan's clothes so that he looked like Dathan. And then after Veronica's death, the man decided to kill himself and to take Josh with him. And Josh's dad actually reveals... He was like, I recognize that man. A couple of days ago, he asked me to fill in some holes out here on this property. So Josh's dad actually buried his son with the stalker kidnapper.
1: Hmm. The end. Interesting. That's pretty good.
0: No, it sounds like a good story. So Heart- uh, what? <laughs> I was just gonna say heartwarming. Heartwarming. Uh they ended up together. Um so obviously I'm going to give this book five stars. Five silhouettes in the forest. Whatever. It is my favorite horror novel. Because when I read it for the first time, I was just terrified the whole time. I loved it.
1: Yeah, it's got, I mean, it's definitely creepy. Does that make sense? Seems seems kind of like a weird question, just given the nature of it. But since I guess we ask it every week, I can ask, would you die if you were in the pen
0: pal? I would not, because my mother would never let me release a balloon with my picture tied to it, ever. <laughs> To harken back to episode one, I have helicopter parents. Yeah, I
1: don't feel like people do that stuff too much anymore. We also, when we were in mid school, they didn't have our pictures in them. Like we would like, I think we released like notes with like, I want to say like an email address or something like that, or the school's address. I can't even remember so long ago.
0: Yeah, well, in in pen pal it was the school's address. Yeah, they definitely didn't have pictures of us though. I can tell you that much. Yeah, there was just like a Polaroid of the kid with a balloon. Almost as nonsensical as you asking about Pen Pal, <laughs> would you die in the crow?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously not. The people who die are all like the super bad guys. It's getting revenge. That just wouldn't be me. It's not, there's nothing else interesting to say about that, but no.
0: Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a very happy Halloween. And if you feel like rating, reviewing, subscribing, we'll have a happy Halloween as well. <laughs> Yeah, thanks
1: so much. Hopefully, you enjoyed this Halloween edition, which was not any different than what we normally talk about. No, but for Halloween, you did your favorite movie, and that I, I did watch. my favorite book. Yeah, and I do watch it on... Well, I watch it on Devil's Night every night, but yeah. So, that makes sense. We did, we did good stuff that we liked for it. Yes. And if you want to comment on anything, or have a question, or I guess a correction, <laughs> or... Um, if you want to make a suggestion on a movie and stuff, you can always email us
0: at diepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter under second to die pod. You can also find me on Goodreads if you want to read along with me, also second to die pod. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.